0: Welcome to The Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. So this is the third in our series of podcasts on short selling. The runtime on this pod is a little longer than usual, but that's because it's an intriguing chat with Bethany McLean, a journalist who is probably most famous for breaking the scandal at Enron in the early 2000s. After a tip-off from activist short-seller Jim Chanos, she began uncovering what was, at the time, the biggest fraud in US corporate history. Well, I'm delighted to be back. Uh, I'm sorry Jeff did resign, but you know he did resign. It was voluntary. I think that's all been pretty well explained now. Uh, I tried to talk him out of it. The board tried to talk him out of it. Uh, but he was pretty firm in his decision, uh, so the board accepted his resignation and asked me to reassume uh, the CEO's job. And I'm excited. I think we've got a lot of great stuff going on. We're not getting much credit for it in the marketplace, for damn sure. But we will.
1: Enron employees, some carrying boxes filled with belongings, leave their downtown headquarters, huddled against the cold and an uncertain future. News of the demise of the merger between Enron and Dynagy left many in shock, especially because many workers are losing not only their jobs, but also their retirements, as Enron's stock keeps plunging. Yeah, I think that many, many people have lost
0: a substantial amount of money. John Elario has time for a hot breakfast in the mornings. He doesn't have to dash to the office. A few months ago, he'd have been joining the morning rush hour in downtown Houston, Texas. But Alario worked for Enron, once the world's largest energy trading company and now the biggest bankruptcy in history. Overnight, many of Enron's 19,000 employees lost their jobs and savings. Yet top executives cashed in before the shares were worthless, making millions. Bethany studied maths at university and worked on Wall Street with Goldman Sachs before becoming a journalist. She's also an author of many books, including Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, as well as a producer on documentary series such as Netflix's Dirty Money. In this pod, she chats to Schroeder's fund manager, Juan Torres Rodriguez, from our sister podcast, The Value Perspective. They talk about breaking the story of Enron, the role activist short sellers and journalists play in uncovering frauds, the state the market currently finds itself in and much more. If you haven't listened to the first two pods in the short selling series, then I highly recommend you do so. We also have links to them in the show notes. You'll also notice there's two podcasts in your feed this week. I follow up Bethany's chat with a one-to-one with Juan himself to find out how he has, as an investor, put plans in place to try to avoid making the mistake of investing in companies like Enron. Anyway, enough of the shameless plugging. Let's get on with the chat with Bethany. Juan starts by asking how she, as a journalist, went about breaking the Enron story.
1: So, I, journalists are really only as good as our sources. I suppose that's not entirely true, but we you, you rely on, and I was a generalist journalist at the time, meaning I wrote about lots of different things. So, there's no reason I would have looked at Enron if somebody hadn't said, a uh, well-known short seller named Jim Chanos hadn't said, why don't, why don't you take a closer look at Enron? We don't understand this. He was not on the record, so that meant that I could take the tip and say, oh, this is interesting, but then I had to go and do and do all the work myself. I actually think that Enron remains, Enron still looms large in, in many ways in a way that I would never have understood or anticipated at the time, but I think for lots of reasons. I think one of them is that it was the beginning of a breaking point in the sense that up until Enron, which coincided with the collapse of the com boom, there was this idea that individual investors were now on the same playing field as major investors. And we were responsible in the U.S. for managing our own retirement through our 401ks and choosing our own stocks. And the market was a place where stocks went up and everybody got rich and, and companies didn't lie. And Enron was the first time that everybody said, wow, maybe, maybe none of that's true, this Huge company that is on the Fortune 500 list that is so celebrated, everything about that can be wrong, and so I think it was the beginning of a crack in confidence, in a sense that was exacerbated by the financial crisis of 2008 that I don't, I'm not sure we've ever really recovered from. So I've come to see Enron as a, as a, as a breaking point of sorts, or as a real, as a real turning point. Um, I think the other reason, another reason that Enron remains so broadly interesting is that, as you just alluded to, it really is a tale of human nature. I mean, I was a math major, yes. I worked at Goldman for a mere three years. I'm not a forensic accountant. Why could I see something when everybody else, not? But but the majority of people, all the Southside analysts, portfolio managers were saying, this is the greatest company since sliced bread. This stock is going to double in the the next year. Why couldn't they see what I saw? And I think part of that is a story of Wall Street, right? Everybody wants things to go up because that's how most people make money. And so the bias is very strong in that direction. Lots of people get paid when things go up. Very few people get paid when things go down. And I think it's also a story of the power, the cult of personality and how strong that can be in in business. People in the business world tend to think of themselves as analytical and cold-blooded and able to see facts. That's just so not true. It's just so dictated by emotion. And in this case, people really believed in Jeff Skilling, the former CEO of Enron. He's a very intellectually charismatic figure uh, and one who I think intimidated a lot of people. And so people went along with what they didn't, what they didn't understand. And that lesson, how the emperor's new clothes, the old fable of the emperor's new clothes can actually uh, can actually apply to the modern business world is one that I think is worth not forgetting.
2: And also, I think that people don't realize or forget that it was not only the investment community or sell-side research analysts, but the consultants, the McKinsey's of the world were framing and run as a company to copy. And I think that I've heard you mention in the past that even Harvard Business Review had a case study on them. Is that correct?
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so, so McKinsey, yes, their consultants were running around the world, preaching to other companies how they could make themselves more like the Enron executives. I think they coined a word to describe the Enron executives, petropreneurs. And so I've often joked that maybe it's maybe it's a red flag when consultants start coining words, you should just, you should run away. But um, yes, Harvard, Harvard Business School wrote a number of glowing case studies about Enron. Jeff Skilling had gone to Harvard Business School. And I have been told that those, those case studies are no longer accessible on the HBS database. They've been wiped clean. And so you have to know where to find them in order to to find them. And to me, that's always been a huge knock on Harvard Business School, because if they were really intellectually honest, they would do a wraparound case study of all their positive case studies and say, here's why we got it wrong. Here's why we believe. And and that would be psychologically interesting. Right. But no, they just they just pretend it didn't happen. (laughs)
2: That's really interesting. There's something that you've mentioned in the past about what the media world looked like and its shape 20 years ago and what Fortune Magazine was a part of. And we had recently the pleasure of having Carson Block on the podcast. And he was making the point that in the past, most corporate frauds were uncovered by journalists doing lots of field work. Uh But that specific business model, he claimed, has declined over the last 20 years as traditional media companies have found budget constraints and less appetite to do this kind of work, giving consumers attention, span shortening. Do you do you think that's correct?
1: I do think that's correct. And it would be interesting. This is um, my view of this is also more observational than it is necessarily quantitative. So it'd be interesting to look at it and see if this is, this is really true. But so in the old days when I worked at Fortune, I was paid a salary by Fortune magazine and I could take three months to work on a story that may or may not come to fruition. Now, if you did 10 of those back to back, your career probably wouldn't be in very good shape, but you but you could do that and you could take the chance on something not working out in order to dig into a story that that that, that was important. If I had pursued the Enron story and my my editors had ended up saying, you yeah, know, there's nothing here, we can't publish this, it would not have been the end of my career. I still would have collected my salary. I still would have been able to pay my rent in New York. I still would have been able to, to feed myself, All that all that sort of stuff. Shh. And so the world that that magazine world is is pretty much gone. A lot of magazines operate on a freelance basis where you get paid when you publish a story, and that's it. And so the incentive then is to do pieces that you know are going to get published, not to take a chance on investigating something. The big magazine companies like the Journal and the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they still do a lot of investigative pieces. And so that's the place where I might have a, have a caveat about this. But newspaper journalism has always been a little bit different than than magazine journalists because newspaper journalists have beats. And on the plus side, that means they know their industries very, very well. But on the negative side, it may mean that they can't see the fact coming at them from the outside, right? If you're immersed in something and this is the world you're living, then it's very hard to change your perspective and say, oh, this company that everybody I talk to is celebrating, it might actually be a fraud. And so the glory of the old magazine model was that you came at things fresh and you were able to say... Well, just because everybody sees it this way doesn't mean that, that that I that I see it this way. So I do think something has been lost. On the flip on the flip side, you know, back in that old world, the only way you were going to get something published was if you were a journalist. You had to have access to a major media company. You had to be able to publish in their pages. Today you can be anybody and you can publish. You can publish on Twitter, you can publish on Seeking Alpha. You can there's so many mechanisms. You can publish on Substack. There's so many mechanisms by which by which you can get your own point of view out. And so, in some ways, the deep professionalization of writing is not a bad thing, although. I would argue as a follow-on, it has come with, with with some bad things in the sense that in the old world, you had to be very highly accountable for what you wrote. And if there were factual inaccuracies, you were going to have to correct them. And there were certain processes you had to follow, like calling someone before you published something that was critical of them and making sure you gave them a chance to, to talk. And I think there's been a rise of bullying in this new world because people are able to publish things and say things about people without having to make that very difficult step of picking up the phone and calling them and saying, here's what I'm going to say about you. Have have got anything to say for yourself.
2: <laughs> this is a podcast that has aimed to explore decision-making or how people make decisions under uncertainty and how can you improve. And part of that journey is to explore and understand human psychology and biases and character in general. And so how many times in your experience, people find themselves in this sort of situation where they believe that they aren't actually doing anything wrong. There must be the actual fraud where the person must be aware that he is out there lying. For example, I guess Bernie Madoff, he must have known at some point that he was committing fraud. But in many other cases, there must be a belief that at some point their grand idea will prove right and market conditions will prove them right either. For example, Enron with their broadband or energy services or Valiant with their next purchase or price increase.
1: So I think that's almost always the case that people don't understand or don't allow themselves to admit that they're doing something wrong. The human powers of self-delusion and rationalization are extraordinarily strong. That's how most of us get through (laughs) this thing called life (laughs) with some degree of that. And I think that explains almost every story of business gone wrong. It's rarely a case of someone sitting in a dark room uh, coming up with a bad thing they're about to do. As a journalist, you you only wish, right? That you could find that moment where the heads of all the big financial firms sat in a dark, smoky room off Wall Street, you know, preferably with cigars, figuring out how to take down the global financial system. No, that's 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 not how it worked. Even in the case of Enron, uh, uh, my biggest surprise, because I was such a math major at that point, and I thought if people are doing bad things and it must be bad people deliberately setting out to do those bad things. And when I started talking to former Enron employees, much to my shock, very few of them had any idea that something was going badly wrong. And many of them look back and say, how did I not see it? How did I not add up the pieces? But Enron seemed to them like an immensely profitable corporation. So even if in their division, it looked like something was badly wrong and that they were manipulating the each transaction in order to produce reported earnings while cash was going out the door, they'd say, well, look at all of this. The cash has to be coming from somewhere. And they didn't put all the pieces together and say, wow, this is what we're doing here. Maybe we're doing this across the entire corporation. And I think for leaders at the top of a company, there's a huge incentive to rationalize and to say, well, maybe I'm bridging this gap in quarterly earnings here by by coming up with this transaction that's gonna plug the hole so that I can meet Wall Street's estimates. But that's only until this new business um, kicks in and then everything's gonna be great and this transgression won't come to light. And by the way, I'm doing the right thing for my investors and for my employees by bridging the gap because if I don't do this, the stock is gonna plunge and that's gonna be bad for everybody. So there's, there's a very human process of rationalization and I've often thought that even more broadly, this line between the visionary and the fraudster is actually much narrower than most people think. You want to believe that they sit on opposite ends of the spectrum, but I think they actually sit where the two ends of a circle meet and that the line dividing them is much, much finer than than, than you might think. I mean, Enron's broadband business, as you referenced, was Netflix ahead of its time. And so if the shenanigans of Enron's chief financial officer and all the other ways in which Enron was manipulating its earnings hadn't come to light, and if Enron's uh, demise, if the questions about Enron hadn't coincided broadly with the end of the first dot-com bubble, when all of a sudden there was skepticism in the air, and if Enron had been able to continue to raise money and the capital markets hadn't panicked, would Enron have been able to become Netflix? Possibly. And then would anybody care about what Enron did in order to bridge the gap in these in-between years? No. It would be sort of an interesting academic exercise that, oh, they engaged in all these shenanigans to look more profitable than they were. But no one would really care. I mean, if Elizabeth Holmes' um, machine, the Edison, had eventually worked and it had revolutionized this field, would anybody care, looking back, that there was a period where she was lying and it wasn't really working? No. Um, the same thing with arguably Elon Musk. If his non-self-driving cars do actually drive themselves anytime soon, will anybody care that he once said they were self-driving when they really weren't? Probably not.
0: That's it for part one. In part two of the show, Juan and Bethany begin by discussing the fine line between visionary and fraudster.
1: And I often think of that great quote from Fitzgerald that is, um, the mark of true genius is the ability to hold two competing notions in your mind and not go crazy. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to The Investor Download.
2: Would it be fair to say that the difference between someone that goes down the path of fraud in history or a visionary is just a matter of luck?
1: I'm not sure. I think that's a great question, and I wrestle with this. I think in some ways there is some luck involved because it is the ability to continue to raise money through that period where the vision might have some elements of fraud where it's not quite what you're selling and i think there is there is some luck there's some timing in that some salesmanship some ability to find the right investor who's going to keep backing you through through that period and i think i think some of that is the right idea that's going to capture the imagination of investors around the world such that you can keep raising money through that period, there's also a little bit of luck in what prosecutors choose to look back at. So there are some lies that no one will ever investigate and there are other lies that will get investigated. And I think some of that is a matter of luck in the mood of the public and how hungry people are for for scalps. Um, But then then I wonder, is, is there something else and is there an ability to hear the word no that the people who do get their vision to the other side of the line have have learned? Is there an ability to wrestle with the, the uncomfortable, the fact that this might not work, an ability to say, oh, this is the line I won't cross that those people have? And I think that might be the case that people who have experienced failure are more able to hold the, these two competing notions in their head. And I often think of that great quote from Fitzgerald that is um, the mark of true genius is the ability to hold two competing notions in your mind and not go crazy. It's, it's close to that, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But I <laughs> often think that, that the really great entrepreneur can hold both two book notions in their in their mind, that this is the greatest idea ever and this is gonna change the world and oh, this might fail. And to be able to be very clear-headed about the signs of failure at the same, while not losing the charge forward on the brilliant idea. And I think that's a mark of an incredible mind to be able to do that.
2: You have covered some of the major frauds in corporate history over the past 20 years. From your own experience, what are the sort of personality traits you find in many of these people behind these major corporate events? Is it a matter of being incredibly smart? Very self-confident, good storytellers, builders of calls. What is it that they have in common?
1: It's all those things. And that's, again, that's interesting, right? Because some of those traits you would also use to describe very successful entrepreneurs and visionaries. But yes, they're often very, very good storytellers. They're people who become cult leaders in a sense that investors uh, just believe in them and begin to think, well, I put my trust in this person regardless of what anybody else says. And that actually can sometimes be the right decision to put your trust in, in, in a person. But it can also be the hallmark of Disaster to of disaster to come. They're often very charismatic. Um, there's often the company itself has taken on a kind of status where if you say something negative about that company, you're going to get attacked and you're going to draw a lot of criticism because the company itself has become this iconic thing that cannot be criticized. So those are all things they have in common. Think about Mike Pearson and Jeff Skilling. Oh, and they were both McKinsey consultants too. That might be another hallmark. I'm only half yeah. joking.
2: Because I guess on the other side of the coin, you will find the Warren Buffetts, the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates, all of them have at some point in time created their own cult. And to a certain extent, people believe in them blindly. I, I don't, not sure a lot of people know how Berkshire, actually a lot of people have pointed out that there are many aspects of Berkshire accounting, which might not be as transparent as they sometimes claim it to be.
1: Right. So that's and and for sure you can look back on many of the stories around Microsoft in the early days i'm pretty sure did the term vaporware originally come from a Microsoft product? I'm not sure that's true, but there were certainly many Microsoft product launches that were vaporware in the sense that the product didn't quite do what the company was claiming that it did. And so what's the line between that and Elizabeth Holmes Edison machine? Well, there is a line, but it's finer than you might think. And yes, Steve Jobs is a perfect example, right? Incredibly charismatic man who was very difficult to work for and who has created in some ways this idea in Silicon Valley that be an asshole just like he was. And that must mean that you're gonna be successful just like he was. And maybe that's an interesting lesson is to be very, very careful about correlation versus causation. And I think we all get really sloppy about that. And so the idea in Silicon Valley, and it really did for a while became, if you were an asshole, like Steve Jobs, then you are going to be successful. That must mean, that must be the hallmark of somebody who is going to be successful. Well, maybe maybe not. Maybe it was correlated in the case of jobs, or maybe it wasn't even correlated. Maybe it was just random. And the idea that one thing causes the other, if you step back and think about it, well, it's it's obviously not true. So I I, I think that maybe separating out these, these our, our our human desire to simplify and to find a personality trait that must mean we shouldn't believe in this person and to really think about well, is that true? Correlation versus causation, or maybe just the randomness of life.
2: Because you will correct me if I'm wrong, but Jeff Skilling was a very difficult person to work for, and he was actually caught once on an analyst call calling someone something that we cannot really repeat on this podcast.
1: Can't we come and,
2: on. <laughs> and well even Elon Musk called on an analyst on a call as well because he didn't like the question which was something about how are you making money.
1: Yes. Yes. And so that's true. Jeff Skilling was he was infamous for dividing the world into the people who got it and the people who didn't get it. And everybody wanted to be on his list of the people who got it because you felt like one of the uncool kids if you were on the list of people who didn't get it. And the way to land yourself on the list of people who didn't get it was to ask a question that Skilling didn't like and had just dismiss you by saying, you don't get it. And it's really amazing how powerful that is in life, particularly as we get older, because you tend to think that you get older, you get more confident. Of course, you're going to call things out and say, no, I don't understand that. And in fact, I think, again, just like the fable of the emperor's new clothes, life often works in exactly the opposite way. As you get older, you have more to lose. And so you are more afraid to say, I don't understand it, particularly when everybody around you uh, appears to be understanding it. The temptation is just to say, well, maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention, but I'm sure this must be right. Or everybody else around me wouldn't be wouldn't wouldn't be agreeing with this. And so I often think one really important lesson in life and something I think about a lot is how do you make sure you're being intellectually honest with yourself? And for me, it's always when I sit down to write. I suppose it's a math major in me, but when I sit down to write, I figure out that I didn't really understand the thing that I pretended to understand, because I do it too. If someone's explaining something to me, I'll often nod my head, and I really think in that moment that I've gotten it, and then I sit down to write and to try to explain it to somebody else, and I realize... I didn't I didn't understand. And that forces, that's that's my sort of enforcement mechanism for intellectual honesty, if you will. And I think everybody has to find that for, for themselves. Um, and it may not mean, it doesn't mean you have to be public about it. It doesn't mean you have to be the person in the room who says, I don't get it, but you have to know yourself that you didn't really understand what just happened. And then you can go back and do more work and try to understand it. it. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with it, by the way, that you didn't understand it. It may just mean that you weren't paying attention. You weren't, often in my case, you weren't smart enough to understand it. And you need somebody to hold your hand and walk you through it a little a little more carefully. And all of that is good. The, where you get into trouble is when you when you pretend that you understood it and you didn't. And when you pretend to yourself, especially that you understood it
2: and you didn't. Have you ever had a chance of talking to Skilling or Fasto after the events unravel and they came out of jail?
1: So Andy and I have run into each other a couple of times um, because he's now out on the speaking trail, giving talks about his experiences at, at Enron. So, so yes.
2: I want to flip the question a little bit. And this is something that we ask Carson Block and is very much of our interest, which is, What's needed from a behavioral point of view and personality and character to be on the other side of the trade? You have all of these people believing in the company, all of these people believing on the narrative, all of these people believing on the story. You have regulators that sometimes side with management. You have long-only investors. You have hedge funds. Sometimes, I think that chain once said that on almost every short, big or famous short seller straight, there's a famous long only investor. And the person that is uncovering whatever is wrong or raising questions about the business model gets hammered and attacked incessantly. I think that that's a little bit uh, what short sellers have had to live over a long period of time, if not ever, that's the nature of their business, but journalists as well. So what does it need to be one of those people? So
1: Jim Chanos once said to me, and it was years and years ago, he said that he had no problem finding really smart people to come and work for him who could do all sorts of interesting analysis. But what was hard was to find the person who could stand against the tide, especially for a really long period of time. And it was easy, not easy enough, but it was okay to say, all these people think this, and I think it's this once, but continue to believe that in the face of being told you're wrong by all the people you just you just mentioned was really, really difficult. And I think more broadly, that's that's it. We as humans, and it's probably a pro-social trait, we, we, we want to belong, right? We want to fit in with other people. And standing against the tide when everybody thinks something and saying, no, 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 I don't believe that. I don't think that's right. It's, it's very, very difficult. And it's more difficult for some people than it is is for others. And so I guess it comes back to knowing yourself. And if it's easy for you, that's great. But then that may, may mean, as in as in my case, that you have a little bit too much of a tendency to be a contrarian. And in the end, being a reflexive contrarian is no better than being a reflexive believer, right? If you don't believe something just because everybody else does, well, that's not really any more thoughtful than believing it just because everybody else does, right? <laughs> so so I have a little bit of that in me, and I have to be, I have to be wary of that. But if you don't and you're over overwhelming desire is to belong and to fit in, then you have to be aware of that in yourself and, and ask yourself when you're going along with something or when you agree with something that everybody else thinks, why, why is this? And if you don't agree with it, then to sort of know that this is going to be hard for you because, because you, because you, it, it's more comfortable to think like everybody else does. And so I think it just, it comes down to that old basic tenet of self-knowledge.
2: When you wrote your first piece of Enron, And you had like a series of pieces, it was not only one, right?
1: no it was it was one major piece and then I did a few smaller ones before they went bankrupt but that that was one of the downsides of the old model of magazine journalism and, and still true to some extent today which is that it is kind of a hit me with your best shot uh, um, um, thing you don't have the opportunity to publish a piece on Enron and then in the next issue in the magazine publish another piece on Enron right you get to publish one piece on Enron and then that's that you've said what you what you have to say and so I I, I do think and this is a different question than what you asked but one of the strengths of journalism today is that it can be more iterative. You know, you can publish and then people can come to you and say, but what about this? And you, you can publish again online, um, et cetera. Anyway, that wasn't what you
2: asked. <laughs> what I was getting, I wanted to ask you if you had a lot of pressure from Enron itself or sales analysts or long-on investors, or was it a fact, as you were explaining at the beginning, that you came out with the story and it just made public the uneasiness that many people were feeling about the company?
1: So there was a lot of pressure. Um, I had to call Enron, of course, before before the story ran. I did a lot of homework and I called them. And I still remember this call because I sort of expected them to say, yeah, 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 whatever. Go away, pesky little journalist. Um, um, you know, this is this is here. Are the answers to your questions. This is absurd. Um, and they sort of said that, but in a very aggressive way. So they had Jeff Skilling get on the phone with me, and he yelled at me. And he said, "Anybody who raises these questions is unethical because you haven't done enough homework to understand our business. And if you had done your homework, you would understand how stupid your questions are. And it's unethical of you to publish a story like this when you don't understand anything about us." And then he had a couple of of um, Enron executives, including Andy Fastow, fly up to Fortune's offices in New York and, and sit down with, with me and my editors. And Ken Lay, who was at the time the chairman of Enron, called the editor of Fortune and said, you know, don't you dare publish this story. You've got an ignorant young journalist who is taking a story from a short seller and, you know, we can't we can't go forward. You can't do this. So there was a fair amount of pressure. And that was for sure intimidating. I'm always by nature, also inclined to think that I might be wrong. And so that kind of pressure to some people would make them say, well, I must be right. Look at all this pressure that's trying to silence me. And in my case, I suppose there was a little of that, but it was more, uh uh-oh, I, I might be wrong. <laughs> um, but one of the great glories of the old model of, of magazine journalism was that my editors stood with me. So I've always wondered if they had not, if they had said, oh, Bethany, you know, we can't go forward with this, uh, how hard I would have fought for my story. And I, I think I would have fought, But I, but the reality is I didn't have to do that because they all backed me up.
0: That's it for part two of the show. In the final part of the show, Juan and Bethany discuss the dangers of group thinking.
1: The idea that a global pandemic is going to come along and two and a half years later, we're still going to be fighting our way through it. No, 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 that can't happen. That's that's out of some kind of science fiction book. And so I think people often have a lack of imagination in a way that is very dangerous. Get in touch with us by email at Podcasts at shooters.com or visit our website,
2: Why is it that you find sometimes regulators so skeptical of many of the claims that go against many of these companies? Is it that we are just, it's easy to remember the cases that were fraud for real, but maybe there are many cases in history where people were pointing fingers at the company where there was no major fraud or maybe it was not uncovered or maybe it just got bailed out by markets or some of the other reasons that we've talked about in the podcast?
1: Yeah, so I think it's both. I think maybe 3 falls. So first is, as you said, there are a lot of cases where people bring complaints to regulators, and it turns out that the complaints aren't totally real, and what they really want is for the regulator to take action so that they can make money off their position, and that's real, right? So regulators have an inherent and valid skepticism of people who are trying to get them to take an action that will benefit their their own pocket. I would say that that's true, but not entirely everybody in the market is self-interested, right? We all want our position to benefit. So the idea that someone who wants a stock to go down is somehow worse than somebody who wants a stock to go up. Well, that's not very honest. That's not true. So that's one portion of it, I think. I think another component of it, though, uh, the broader human nature aspect of it is that people just don't... Well, let me pause on the second issue first, which is that people, often regulators... There's implicit bias. You all come, I think that was true in the run-up to the financial crisis. It's not explicit bias. It's not like someone was shoving a bag of cash at Ben Bernanke under the table, telling him to say that the subprime mortgage crisis was going to be contained and wasn't going to be a big deal. It's that when people all come from inside the same world, they tend to think the same way. And so you just don't see it because, because you 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 think like the people you're regulating. And so because you think like them, and these are the people you talk to, you don't mean to get it wrong, but you do. But I think the biggest thing is this broader sort of lack of imagination. And that's because when you look at some of these corporate disasters before they happen, if someone were to to have told you that this was going to happen, you would say, no way. This, This could never happen. This just couldn't happen. Enron couldn't one of the biggest companies in the US could possibly be a fraud. The financial crisis, major Wall Street institutions going bankrupt or almost going bankrupt. No, 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 that can't happen. Um, even Elizabeth Holmes, that her whole Edison machine could be a fraud that and she could be so celebrated and on the cover of every magazine. No, 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 that can't possibly happen. The idea that a global pandemic is going to come along and two and a half years later, we're still going to be fighting our way through it. No, 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 that can't happen. That's, that's out of some kind of science fiction book. And so I think, people often have a lack of imagination in a way that is very dangerous because they think that really big bad thing can't, can't be on the list of possibilities. And the reality is it is.
2: Does that same rationale applies to long-only investors and analysts on the sell side?
1: I think it does. I think the idea that this worst case outcome, that this big bad thing could actually happen. It's not the way our human brains work. And you would say it's an outside probability. It's a very tail end. But except when you look back over the last couple of decades, it really isn't. This stuff happens over and over again. And that crazy worst case outcome is actually not only it's possible, may not be probable,
2: but it for sure is possible. Are East activist short selling going extinct? in the sense that you only have, I mean, you will correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems like the fact that markets have been going up for the last 10 years and short selling is very difficult, and they face so much pressure. Nowadays, you have chainus and maybe Carson Block, who are quite famous, and I know that there are there might be a lot of smaller shops out there, but you don't hear that much about them as maybe before. Is that a, is that a fair I think,
1: I, I think it is, but I think it's sort of just like that famous Business League cover in 1980 that predicted the death of equities, right? I think right now we're predicting the death of short sellers, and it certainly has been a terribly rough time to be a short seller. But I think we're heading into a very different market going, going forward. And so this next decade could be the golden age of short sellers, right? And we're all predicting their extinction.
2: But more than short sellers themselves, Um, I was kind of thinking about the the activist one, the one that is kind of pointing fingers to a company that it's misbehaving or manipulating reality or the economics of the business, just because they tend to be attacked by so many people. I guess it must be emotionally and psychologically very, very difficult.
1: Well, I think it depends on who you are. It goes back to my comments about our discussion about human nature. There's some people who thrive on that. I mean, there really are. And so I hope not because... I actually think one of the when I think back on Enron, one of the great uh, misconceptions about that period was that everybody had access to the same information and they really didn't, because when you looked at the public narrative about Enron, it was this glowing success where the stock was going to triple in the next year. But then there was a private narrative about Enron in the credit markets where they were trying desperately to raise money among among short sellers that was very, very skeptical. And yet that narrative didn't ever make it into the public. And so individual investors got screwed. They had no chance to protect themselves because it wasn't as if they had this view and this view and they were able to weigh for themselves these two competing views and say, well, this is what I choose to believe. The world is very different today. In the case of Tesla, for instance, if you choose to believe in Tesla, it's not because there's not lots of information to the contrary, right? But you can look at that and make your own decision. and and I think that's that's much healthier and that in some ways has been even over the course of the last really difficult 10 years, of 20 years of huge difficulty for short sellers, that's because there are so many people who are public about their, their negative views and willing to take that, that heat. And I think that's something for which we should all be grateful. Why would you not wanna hear a contrary opinion? Even if you're the biggest believer in Tesla that there possibly ever was, why would you not wanna know that this is the viewpoint of a really smart person who's taking the opposite bet? Dismiss it if you want, but at least you know it's there. Whereas in the old days, we didn't we didn't even
2: know it was there. Do you think that the world has changed much over the course of the last 20 years? And the reason I'm asking the question is because we had Dominique Miel on the podcast. She used to be at Canyon, was a partner at Canyon, was one of the uh, first top 10 employees, very successful women in finance. And on her book, Damsel in Distress," I think that she made the point that there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to finance. All of these things repeat over and over again and just people have short-term memories and they forget that all of this has already happened.
1: Yes, I agree with her. I haven't read her book, but I will go read it. And um yes, I completely agree with that. There's nothing new under the sun. And just when we start to say that, oh, this this is done, short sellers are dead, the world changes and all of a sudden we're we're back in a time that we were that we were in before. But you know all of these since the beginning of time since the tulip mania all of these frauds have this one or business gone wrong stories have this one this one thing in common which is the complicity of the victims the belief of the great majority of people in the thing that after the fact is going to seem too clearly too good to be true and if we didn't all believe the thing wouldn't happen, right? <laughs> we all always—it's human nature to want to get rich, to believe in that thing that's going to be—that's going to clearly, in retrospect, be too good to be true. So, whether it's Enron, whether it's the financial crisis, where we all, for a period of time, believe that mortgages made to people who couldn't pay them back could be turned into super-safe securities, whether it's Elizabeth Holmes, that a that a young woman with no with no formal training could invent a machine that had bedeviled scientists for decades. We, we, you look back and you say, oh, of course, that didn't make sense, but we all wanted to believe. And I think, by the way, that's not necessarily bad. I think in some ways that that human capacity to believe in what seems to be nearly impossible is also what makes the world move forward. So it's it's both a very bad delusional trait in people and also a very good trait. It can be both at the same time.
2: I would like to circle back to something that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation on how much the media had evolved over time and the capacity for people to publish on uh, Seeking Alpha or a substack or creating content out of the blue. How much does narrative and storytelling has taken over the world to the point that it makes much more difficult to see through what's fake news or reality, given that you are being bombarded by all sorts of content that gets no filter. And you just don't know narrative. Tesla fans saying that that's not a car manufacturing, that's a software company or examples like that.
1: I think narrative has always ruled the world. There's a reason that human beings have told stories since the dawn of time. That's because that's how we make sense of of our world. And storytelling inevitably involves some slippage. It's not a story if it adheres to the actual facts. facts fact after fact after fact. It has to be woven into a story that makes sense to humans. And stories are archetypal. And so I think that thus it ever was. I think what is different today is the lack of fact-checking, I've spoken as a former fact-checker. But you know, if you read something in traditional media, it you had to have called the the person who was being criticized because that's the way it worked. You couldn't publish otherwise. It was considered unethical. If you didn't, if the facts weren't accurate, then there was going to be a retraction somewhere. It may not be what the person who was, who was criticized would like, but it was going to be clear that it was, that it was wrong. And that's, and that's gone today. So I've often thought that if I had all the money in the world and the time I would set up, um, I would set up a not-for-profit that taught fact-checking and it would come up with um, a curriculum that then could be given to schools. And so that kids in high school, even middle school would be learning to fact-check because when I got to Fortune, this was the way it worked. You were handed a story, and it was printed on in those days on black and, black and white ink. And often, when we're given something in that kind of format, the idea that it could be wrong, that it could be made up, was just inconceivable because it's beautifully written and it's and it's and it's it's a story. And being able to see through, being able to say, I remember being given my first story to fact check, and it was something on four hundred one ks. And I read it and was like, well. well of course. And then I had to fact check it. And when you actually break down something into its discrete facts, and then you also, in those days of fact checking, you were responsible for the overall gist. Was the overall gist accurate? Did the facts support the overall argument? And you would often find, much to your shock, that not only were lots of facts wrong, but the entire thing was wrong. And that was, it was really good training. It's really good training. And I think the world would be a better place if we all learned to do that.
2: I would like myself that fact checklist that you are planning to send to middle school uh, schools in the U.S. because that that feels like something very, very powerful. someday. Um, I, I, I have a, a great, well, it's going to sound a great question for me. I don't know if it's going to be a great question for you, but some people believe that you should not, you should. Try not to meet management that often, because every time that you meet someone, you are creating a bias, especially people that have made it to the top and become the CEOs of a company or or the chairman of a company. They are good at selling a narrative and storytelling. But in your job, you need to meet them and you need to be able to fight against the bias of buying their story.
1: I'm not sure I agree with that. Well, you can't do it as a journalist, right? Because you have to give the person a chance to respond. And I think there's something very powerful in that, in that if your convictions aren't strong enough to withstand the other person's narrative, then maybe you haven't sufficiently tested your convictions. I do think there is something to be said for trying to develop an independent point of view before you talk to management. So uh, I've often thought that if I had... If I'd been a beat reporter or if I had met Enron's management team first and had gotten their whole you know, sle- slate, slate of perfectly put together presentations, what I have believed, and then probably, right? Because I I mean, the amount of money that corporations tell people, pay people to put together an incredibly powerful narrative, one that is so well put together that the gaps between the gaps in the narrative don't reveal themselves very, very easily. uh, It's very hard to see through that. And then there are all these other human nature components of wanting to be liked. And especially if you're, most people in the presence of a powerful intellectually charismatic corporate management team you're going to want them to like you and then that's 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 going to override some of your natural skepticism so i do think it's really important to have your own point of view before to have done your own work and have your own point of view before you go into something but i think that being able to test that point of view against the power of someone else's storytelling is important because if you can't withstand that, then maybe you haven't earned the right to your point of view.
2: Have you had a chance of reading Dan McCrum's Money Man, the story of Wirecard's fraud? I haven't
1: read. The, I, I I have I have read pieces of the book and paid attention to that that story. I have not read, read the book in its entirety. But yes, once again, Wirecard. I mean, how could there be a better, more powerful example of this and a more powerful example of your previous point that there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, this is all that in spades, right? Somebody warning for a long, long, long time that Wirecard was was a fraud and no one wanted to pay attention until they they did. I guess that's another interesting lesson that that I've thought about is is things change in an instant and you can't predict the instant in which that thing is going to change. So the skepticism about Wirecard was out there for years before all of a sudden everybody said, oh my God, th- th- this is right. And so you have to be careful of dismissing skepticism and saying, oh, well, this is an old story. It's been out there for three years and it doesn't look like it's right because nothing has happened in these last three years. It doesn't really mean anything. It just means the time for that hasn't come yet.
2: Dan was on a podcast recently. He said that there might. A lot of fraud going on, given what has happened in markets for the last five years with the sorts of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, VC explosion, private markets. Um, do you would you share that that belief? I, I, that has to be true.
1: I mean, I've been lost, lost, (laughs) immersed is a better word than lost in this book I'm trying to write for the last couple of years. So I have, but I, in some ways I'm sad because I think this, these last couple of years would have, would be, have been a time for uncovering all sorts of stuff. I mean, all you have to do is look at the story told by the Wall Street journalists in their WeWork book about the ways in which the investment bankers fighting to take WeWork public prostrated themselves to Adam Newman in order to get his business and say something is really wrong here. If that's happening in the case of Rework, then it's happening on a smaller scale with all sorts of companies everywhere and all the mechanisms that we think uh, are policing this. The investment bankers who take a company public would never want their names on the prospectus of a company that's going to blow up. Oh, no, no, no they don't care. They just want the
0: fees. So that was Juan's chat with Bethany. Don't forget in your feed right now is my chat with Juan, where we explore some of the themes he discussed with Bethany and how he puts them into practice when he invests himself. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening. But above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers the value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy.